0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's take our Bibles now and we'll turn again today to Luke chapter 17 and a couple more messages from this first section of Luke and the passage we've been looking at, and then, God willing, we'll be going back and picking up and working our way through. Paul's epistle to 1 Timothy, but I I draw your attention today again to Luke 17, and I will read the first four verses. Then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses or stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word, and as we come to your word this morning. We acknowledge our great need of the help of your Spirit to understand your word aright. We pray that your word would come with power, the power of the Spirit. We pray that it would work mightily in the hearts of every one of us for your glory's sake and for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as I've been uh, telling you and as we've been working our way through this text, it's a very important text when it comes to a very important matter, and that is the matter of maintaining healthy, harmonious relationships uh, with one another in the church. And just to review a little bit, we hear Jesus, Jesus speaks first of the activity of confronting one another in love if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And that was the focus of the message a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The situation envisioned is one in which a brother has sinned against you, and what are you to do when that happens? Jesus says rebuke him. You're to point out to him what he's done in an effort to help him to see and his sin and to repent of it. And this we saw as a loving and biblical thing to do. And we also saw that There are many sins in our brothers or sisters we should simply overlook, that we should cover with a blanket of love. But when it's a sinful action that cannot be overlooked without harmful consequences, we need to address it in a spirit of meekness and gentleness, in a spirit of love toward our brother, and out of faithfulness to his soul. Any sinful action that cannot be overlooked without harmful consequences to him or to others, or to the testimony of Christ and the church. Then we begin to consider the second part of the response that our Lord requires in this passage the duty of forgiving one another. Jesus says if he repents, forgive him, and I asked and sought to answer two questions as we opened up what Jesus says here. First question is when must we forgive others? And the answer Jesus gives is only and always and immediately upon repentance. We saw that there's a very important distinction that we have to make, a distinction between the disposition that is ready to forgive, eager to forgive, desiring to forgive, which we are to seek grace from God to have that disposition at all times against those who uh, toward those who sin against us. But there's a distinction between that and the actual act of granting forgiveness itself, which can only be righteously expressed Where there is repentance. If he repents, forgive him. On the other hand, when a brother comes to us saying, I repent, in other words, he comes, acknowledges his sin, asking for forgiveness, we are to forgive him immediately, and we are always to do that, no matter how many times he has sinned against us. Verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day, and seven times in the day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And then we took up a second question, What then does it mean to forgive my brother? We saw that the foundation of forgiveness is uh, what we just mentioned earlier, the heart that's ready to forgive, desiring to forgive, which again, we are always to be. But that's not what forgiveness is in and of itself. When God forgives us, what does he do? Well, he doesn't just sit in heaven and feel something. He makes a promise. He tells us, that he forgives us in his word, a promise that our sins and our iniquities he will no longer count against us. And we saw that this is what it means to forgive someone. When a brother who has sinned comes to you and says, will you please forgive me? To forgive him means that you, you verbally respond to that request and you say something along these lines Yes, I forgive you, and you're to understand that what that means is you are promising never to hold it against him again. Well, those were the last two messages. Those two messages raised a number of questions. Indeed, I've had a number of questions that have been put to me after that last message. Some of you have raised some very excellent, very good questions, and it is my plan next week to kind of Uh, tie all of this up with one last message in which I will take up some of the questions that are raised by our Lord's teaching here. Uh, You might call the message next week, uh, Cases of Conscience Regarding Forgiveness. But before I do that, there's another important element involved in maintaining harmonious relationships with with each other in the church that I want to address, and it's the flip side of what we considered in the last two messages. In those messages, and in our text here in Luke, the situation envisioned, you remember, has been one in which a brother has sinned against you. What are we to do in that situation? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day, seven times in the day, returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. But now what what if the situation is reversed? Let's reverse the situation. Instead of you being the person who has been sinned against, you are the one who has sinned against your brother. Instead of the offended, as in Luke 17, you are the offender. Well, if all we had is is this text in Luke 17, you might be tempted to think that in such a case, there's nothing for you to do. The weight of responsibility all lies with the offended brother, not me. He's responsible to come to me and to address it, and if he doesn't do that, well, then I guess there's nothing for me to do. But no, that would not be correct for you to draw that conclusion. And here is where we see the genius of our Lord's overall teaching on this subject. He puts the weight of responsibility on both parties. The person who feels that he's been sinned against is to go to his brother. But also, as we're going to see this morning, the brother who has sinned is responsible to go to the person he sinned against and to ask his forgiveness. Indeed, if they're both doing what they should, they ought to meet each other, right? As they're both coming to each other on the way to speak to the other. But regardless of what my brother does, each one is responsible to do what Christ commands him to do, to bring about Reconciliation. There's no, there's no room for stubborn pride. Waiting for the other person to make the first move. Whichever side of the problem I'm on, whether I'm the offended or the offender, I must be moving for reconciliation. So this morning I want us to turn together to a second major passage that deals with these issues. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Picking up with verse 23. Here Jesus addresses the other side of the coin. What to do when you are the offender. This is I read Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, as I open this up, notice, first of all, the situation that's envisioned here. Jesus is giving us an illustration in which he asks us to picture in our minds a particular situation. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. So what do we have here? Well, notice first, we have a man who's about to engage in an act of worship if you bring your gift to the altar. Now, under the Old Covenant, uh, old covenant there were various gifts and sacrifices that were presented upon the altar to Yahweh, to Jehovah. Some of them were obligatory, others were purely optional, and what were called free will offerings, and some have tried actually here to distinguish what kind of offering Jesus is referring to here, but Jesus doesn't make any distinction in the text. So the word gift appears to be simply a general term or a general way of referring to all kinds or any kind of offering. Now, of course, Jesus is couching his illustration within the context of the Old Covenant form of worship. That was still in force when Jesus spoke these words. But the, the concept embodied in the illustration still impl- applies. If we set the illustration in the context of new covenant worship, it's the same as Jesus saying, if, if you come to worship in any way, public, private, family worship, either in prayer or in the reading or the hearing of God's Word, in the offering of the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, or in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, if you come to worship God in any divinely appointed way, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. The point is, here is a man who's about to engage in a divinely appointed, solemn act of worship. But just as he's about to do so, he remembers that his brother has something against him. But now what about this word something? You remember that your brother has something against you. What does he mean by something? What are we to understand by this something? Why do I ask the question? Well, in other words, are we to understand by this something that this grievance that a brother has against you that it is something that is a justifiable grievance? Or does it involve even a grievance that is unjustified? Do you see the difference? Uh, Is Jesus speaking of a situation in which I have actually sinned against my brother in some way, and therefore he has a justifiable grievance against me? Or is he speaking of that, but also a situation when a brother has a grievance against me for some unknown or unrighteous reason, and I haven't actually sinned against him? In any way. Well, it's obvious and all agree that what Jesus says here at least applies to a justifiable grievance, a situation in which you have actually wronged this other person. That much, I think, at least is very clearly included here. You've actually done some injury to your brother. You've actually treated him in some way inconsistent with brotherly love. You've actually said or done something that you should not have said or done. You've actually wronged him in some way that he is aware of, and he has a complaint or a grievance against you, or he's angry with you, or there's been a cloud of tension that is there between you and him because of this. Things are not right in your relationship because you have sinned against him. That much for certain is included in what Jesus meant when he said, if your brother has something against you. But now, what if your brother has something against you when you haven't done anything wrong to him? Does what Jesus say here strictly apply to that kind of situation as well? Well, there are some, it appears, who have been inclined to interpret this in that way. That's why I bring this up. You may read that sometimes, but I have to disagree with that interpretation. The underlying assumption of the whole passage is that the person addressed has actually wronged his brother in some way. That's clearly the case we see, for example, in the illustration that Jesus uses immediately after this to reinforce this teaching. The illustration in verses 25 to 27, uh, 26. There Jesus warns of being taken to the judge and deliver to the officer, and cast into prison until you have paid the last penny. And clearly, uh, the assumption and the use of those figures is that there has been a real wrong that has been done. And so that's the underlying assumption of this entire section. And really, to make this a duty, as some, it appears, have tried to do, that uh, and to make this to apply with reference to any conceivable situation in which someone does not like you or has something against you for no justifiable reason at all, is to make this command of verse 24 totally impractical. If that were the case, then a sensitive conscience could never be at peace. Because I hate to tell you, but as long as we live in this world, there are probably going to be people who don't like you. People who have something against you, for absolutely no rational, not to mention justifiable reason, and to apply a rule that would therefore be saying that you can't be right and in communion, proper communion with your heavenly Father, or render acceptable worship unless you've gone to every single person who may possibly have something against you, even though they have no reason to, that would be an impossible rule to follow. And it would leave a sensitive conscience in a constant state of, Of turmoil. Think about it. The scribes and Pharisees had something against Jesus. In fact, they hated him. They were very angry at him. They had something against him. But we don't see Jesus during his earthly ministry running around to every single individual scribe and Pharisee and trying to smooth things over with them. No. Their complaint and grievance against him was an unrighteous grievance that was totally unjustified. There was nothing he needed to make right with them, for he had done nothing wrong to them. And so I say that it's wrong to press what our Lord says here to that extreme. Rather, the context itself, together with these other considerations, point to the fact that Jesus is speaking here of a justifiable grievance. You have have actually sinned against this person in some way that he is aware of, Or that has brought harm to him. And the reason I put it that way, something in a way that he is aware of or that has brought harm to him is you're not to be going and confessing to people sins in your heart toward another person. You know, brother, yesterday I had some real bad thoughts about you. Will you please forgive me? Well, I don't need to know that you had bad thoughts about me. That's between you and God. You never acted upon them. You never did anything to me, right? But sadly, sometimes a sensitive conscience gets hold of this teaching and the Satan can, can work on us and things like that happen and it can cause all kinds of problems. You know, that stirs up thoughts in another person's mind that they don't need to have about you. Like, why, why do they think that about me? Why? So it's not something that just in your heart you had a, your attitude hasn't been good toward that person or you feel like you haven't loved them as you ought to or you were really struggling with some really hard, bad thoughts about them unless you've acted upon them in some way or you've withdrawn from them in some way that they're aware of. You've sinned against them in some way that they are aware of or that has brought conscious harm to them. I say conscious harm to them because you may have brought conscious harm to them and they don't know it was you but it was you, and in that sense, you would need to make it right because it harmed them in some way. But private things in your heart, you know, it's a very important principle that sins should only be confessed within the scope of those affected by the sin. And therefore, private sins only need to be confessed to God. If I sin against my wife, I need to confess it to her and ask her forgiveness. I don't necessarily need to stand up before the church and ask the church's forgiveness. But if I sin in a public way, that there needs to be a public confession of my sin, depending upon who is affected by the sin. But, to, but, but you shouldn't confess sin outside the scope of those affected by it, unless it is simply to give honor and glory to God for how he has forgiven your sin and to give testimony to what God has done for you by his grace. You follow me there? Those very important to keep those things in mind. So now having said that, what about the brother in the church who has a grievance against you for no real reason? Well, for a wrong reason. And I said that that's not what Jesus is talking about, but does that mean you shouldn't be concerned about that? You shouldn't even worry about that? No. If it's a Christian brother, you still have a responsibility, but that's the kind of situation that takes us back to Luke chapter 17, you see. Or to Matthew 18. The fact that he's angry at you or has a grudge against you for no justifiable or righteous reason is sin on his part. He's sinning against you. And if that's not just a hunch that you have, but this has been expressed in some way by his actions or words, if you go back to Luke 17, you need to go to him. But not to ask for his forgiveness. I want you to please forgive me that you're angry at me for no reason. No. You need to go to him to confront him in love. To admonish him. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he doesn't repent of his wrong behavior toward him, take witnesses and the process of Matthew 18 comes into play. But again, you see, that's not the situation envisioned here. The situation here is when a brother rightfully has something against you. You have sinned against him and you have not made it right. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand that this is what Jesus is talking about. That's why I've gone into all of this. And one of the reasons this is very important is not only to keep our consciences from being in bondage, as I mentioned earlier, but also because it's not right, nor is it spiritually wise or spiritually healthy. It's not good for you. Or for that person to ask a person to forgive you of a sin that you know in your conscience you did not commit. That Satan will have you confessing sins all over the place all the time that you didn't, never committed. To do it just to, to appease him or her. No. If a man is accusing you falsely or has wrongly alienated himself from you, he doesn't need to be appeased by approaching him in a kind of weak, unbiblical way and saying, for example, something like this, I'm sorry if I said or did something wrong, please forgive me. No, if you did nothing wrong. Now, it's not wrong to sometimes ask someone, maybe you did, and say, was there something I did? But, but if you've done nothing wrong, you don't need to ask forgiveness. That brother doesn't need to be appeased and therefore allowed to justify himself in his sinful attitude. He needs to be shown that you did nothing wrong. And he needs to be confronted for having something against you. And I mean in a loving, gracious way for having something against you for no just reason. You see, asking forgiveness is never to be used as a gimmick, as a pretense, a sham, just to relieve tension. When are we to go to our brother and ask his forgiveness? It's when we have, in fact, sinned against him in some way. That's the situation envisioned in our text. You have actually sinned against this person in some way that he's aware of, or some way that has he has been consciously affected by. Now Jesus doesn't say specifically how you have sinned against him. The expression is general, no doubt it's general on purpose so as to cover all cases, even the slightest. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant you might be tempted to think the issue is, if it is something, any something, that your brother has against you, something you have done, something you have said, any something that is wrong, that sin has disrupted peace or produced tension in that relationship or erected a barrier between you and that person. Anything of that nature whether seemingly small or big, can be called something. And therefore, it's included. If you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Well, so much for the situation that's envisioned here. Now notice, secondly, the action that is commanded. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on this point because our Lord's directive is very straightforward. It's very clear. Here's a man about to engage in an act of worship. But then he remembers that his brother has something against him. So what is he to do? Verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus tells us, and I say it reverently, that you are to keep God waiting, as it were. And instead of offering your gift, You are to go immediately to that person you have wronged and do everything on your part to be reconciled to him. You're to go and humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, and ask for his forgiveness. And if you've deprived him of his property or cheated him or sinned against him in a way that allows for restitution, the scriptures make clear elsewhere that you are to make that restitution or you are to come to an agreement That is acceptable to him. Jesus says you must make things right with your brother and then come back and offer your gift. Well, there you have the substance of what the Lord Jesus teaches us here. You said, he really teach that? Yeah, he really taught that. Right? This is what he teaches us. The situation envisioned and the action commanded. Now, for the rest of our time, what are the practical implications of this? Or thirdly, the principles that are underscored here. And the first principle is this. We do not have a right relationship heavenward. We're not walking in communion with our Heavenly Father if we do not have a right relationship insofar as it is in our power manward. Not a right relationship heavenward if there's not a right relationship insofar as is in our power man, manward. That's the principle. And that principle is so binding, we might say, that any person who is conscious that he has wronged another brother or sister in the Lord and has not sought so much as is possible to make it right cannot be an acceptable worshiper of God. God will not be pleased with his worship. That's why Jesus said, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way, and first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Brother and sisters, think about that. What, what a searching, searching principle that, that is. Listen to me. You that are sitting here this morning in the presence of God, engaged in the activities of public worship, if you sit here this morning knowing in your heart that you have sinned against another person and you've not sought to deal with that in repentance and confession and you've not sought in whatever way possible to make things right with that person, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. And you have raised up a barrier in your relationship, in your communion with your heavenly Father, so that your worship of him, even this day, has little value. God does not accept it so long as you obstinately refuse to address this sin against your brother. That's how serious this matter really is. According to the Lord Jesus, this matter is so vital that it would be better to interrupt your worship and even to keep God waiting Then to go on any longer in such a condition, you must go and ask forgiveness and make things right at once. Or if that's not possible, sometimes that's not possible. You don't want to stretch the principle beyond what's even humanly possible. Sometimes that's not possible, but you must at least purpose to do so as soon as circumstances will allow in God's providence. Now, of course, this principle not only applies to our corporate worship, It applies to our family worship, private worship, indeed to our entire relationship to our Heavenly Father in general. The principle is this. You do not have a right relationship heavenward if you do not have a right relationship manward. Christian, you cannot be in fellowship with, you cannot be enjoying the the smile and the blessing of your Heavenly Father until you put yourself right with that man, woman, boy, or girl against whom you have sinned. Now, obviously, there are situations in which we are hindered by divine providence from being able to do so. The person is dead, for example. Someone actually asked me that question. The person is dead. You can't there's nothing you can do about that, right? And sometimes there are messes that our sins make as we look back over our past lives that we'll never be able to disentangle no matter what we might try to do. We'll never be able to entirely make them right. And thank God we don't have to because they were made right in that sense upon the cross when Christ dealt with our sins upon the cross. But there are other situations where it is in our power to do so with some effort. Sometimes it takes some effort. But the opportunity is there. The per- but there are occasions the person's dead, the person's moved away, though you've tried, you can't locate them, or something like that. In such cases, when you've done everything you can, you're hindered by God's providence. And so the principle set forth in Second Corinthians eight twelve comes into play. And there Paul is specifically applying the principle... Uh, to giving, but it's a general principle. that can be applied to this as well. He says, if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. Provided you've done what you can and are hindered by divine providence, God accepts the will for the deed. There's nothing you can do. Otherwise, you cannot be properly related. Otherwise, you cannot be properly related to your heavenly Father You're hindering your fellowship with God, your communion with your Father, you're grieving the Spirit. You cannot be properly related to Him while you have not sought or refused to seek to make things right with that person you have wronged. Now this is one of the most simple and fundamental principles of Christian living. And yet it's amazing how many there are who seem to think they can somehow skirt around this principle. But my dear friend, you can't do that. You can't weasel out of it somehow. Or skirt around it. You can't just ignore it. God's not going to let you do that. Now the Apostle Paul understood this principle. That's why he said in Acts 24, 16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God And men, I actually, here, I actually like the old King James translation. Herein I do exercise myself, always to have a conscience, void of offense toward God and toward man. Notice this was a conscious, deliberate determination. I strive, I exercise myself, he says. The word means to take pains with something. As Paul sought to walk before God in communion with him and in a godly life, a Christ-honoring life, he was conscious of deliberately, actively taking pains with regard to this. It was a conscious exercise. It was also his constant exercise. He said, herein do I exercise myself to have always, he says, always, at all times. And it was his deliberate exercise. Constant exercise to have what? To have a conscience void of offense. Not only toward God, but also toward men. You see, Paul understood the principle that you really can't have a healthy relationship with God without pursuing a healthy relationship toward men. Paul understood the principle of our text. And he consciously, carefully, constantly regulated his Christian life by it. And what does it mean? to have a conscience void of offense toward men. Well, it simply means, it doesn't mean that you're sinless, but it simply means that there is no person that I am aware of, that I have wronged, or that I have sinned against, not merely secretly in my heart, but in a way they know of that has harmed them in some way that they are aware of, that I have not sought, wherever possible, to make it right. That's the principle. Very simple, practical principle. And in walking and living in that way, we maintain a conscience void of offense toward men. Which means we're having to humble ourselves a lot. Which is good. God gives grace to the humble. He resists stiff arms, he resists the proud. Means we have to be quick to confess and to ask forgiveness when we sin against another person. Now let me get a little closer to your consciences. Let me ask each of you. Can you honestly say that there is no person I'm aware of in the fellowship of this church that I have wronged or sinned against? Maybe it's not in the fellowship of this church. Maybe it's some other context, some other Christian or someone. That I have wronged or sinned against, there's no such person that I have not sought biblically so far as I was able to make it right. Is there anyone within the fellowship of this church? By the way, I'm not preaching these, these sermons because I think we've got a problem with this, okay? I mean, we may have a guest here today and you say, man, they must be having real problems in this church. No. <laughs> but I don't want to have problems, right? We have to learn how to address these things. And we have to be practicing these things, right? Is there anyone within the fellowship of this church into whose eyes you cannot look and say... Brother, sister, as far as I know, there is no sin that I have committed against you for which I have not sought your forgiveness. But if you can't say that or do that, then I remind you that the worship, well, I'll say this, insofar as you determine to continue in that way, Not to deal with that as soon as you have opportunity, then the worship that you're engaged in this morning is unacceptable to God. You may be in the right place, singing the right hymns, doing the right things, but God's not pleased with it. And Jesus tells you right here, plain and simple, what you need to do as soon as possible. Indeed, if possible, before you even leave this place today, you need to go to that person and you need to ask their forgiveness. My dear brothers and sisters, God has blessed our church in amazing ways. Especially in the last couple of years. But listen, God's not obligated to continue to do that for another year. Should our church become marked by strife and schism, the Spirit of God will be grieved. And it will not be long before He in large measure withdraws himself from us God can remove his presence from this church just as he has done from other churches that were once his but are not so now read the letters to the seven churches in the book of the revelation Jesus warned for example the church at Ephesus that unless they repented he would come quickly and remove their candlestick out of his place well where's the church in Ephesus now doesn't exist There are churches in this very country that many years ago were shining lights, but now God is not there. Ichabod is written across the door. The glory has departed. May it not happen to our church. And Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was talking about the universal church. The universal church of Jesus Christ still marches on and it will never perish. Christ will always have a people on this earth who are faithful to his name. But many local churches throughout history have perished. God has left them and they've become synagogues of Satan instead of living temples of the Holy Spirit. And I would solemnly warn us, my dear brothers and sisters, that it can happen here. If we who are gathered in this place are grieving the Holy Spirit in our relationships to one another, we may even keep on gathering week after week and we may continue to be very orthodox and very reformed and all the rest, but it won't be long before God's presence is withdrawn and we're just going through the motions. If you ignore the things that I'm preaching to you today, going through the motions in our corporate gatherings to worship, going through the motions in our corporate gatherings to pray, going through the motions as our hearts and as the hearts of our precious children grow colder and colder and harder and harder. Dear people, we need to examine ourselves. Do you have a controversy with a brother or sister in this place? You know, we we love to talk about revival and we pray for revival. We long to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church and to see more sinners converted, to see all of our children converted. It's very exciting to read about these things and to talk about what God can do. But my dear friends, listen, if revival ever comes to a people, it's most likely to come upon a people who are consciously and constantly exercising themselves not only to have a conscience void of offense toward God, but toward one another. Now we could go on and apply this principle to every other kind of interpersonal relationship in the church, children's relationship, to your parents. Young person, can you look at your mom and your dad and can you say, as far as I know, there's nothing between us? Children can sin against their parents. And when you sin against your parents, you need to ask their forgiveness. What about at work? Some of you may work together from time to time, as in every other context. Sometimes we sin against each other in that context. Is there anyone you've wronged that you haven't gone to and asked forgiveness? If restitution needs to make, be made, have you made that restitution? What about our marriages? It's so critical that we practice this in our marriages. It's absolutely vital. Husband, could you turn and look your wife straight in the eye this morning and say, honey, as far as I know, there is nothing between us that is grieving our Lord. Not that I've never sinned against you. You know and God knows. But I have many, many times. But as far as I know, there is no sin against you that I'm aware of that I haven't confessed and asked your forgiveness for. Husband, can you say that to your wife right now? What about you wives? Can you look your husband straight in the eye this morning and say, Honey, as far as I know... There's nothing between us that is grieving our Lord. Let me just tell you a story. This is interesting maybe, but I won't get too off, but we were traveling to a family conference one time, Kelly and I, and we were sitting in the car and we were driving along and I was enjoying our time and I happened to make the comment, you know, I think our marriage is really going great, honey. We We hadn't been married for very long and I said, it seems like we're just really getting along wonderful and... I was just going on and I noticed Kelly was getting quieter and quieter (laughs) and quieter and uh, so I said is there something wrong? (laughs) And there was something wrong and there was some areas where I'd sinned against her that was troubling her and she and it was humbling for me for her to you know I thought everything was great. And that's why we have to be faithful to one another. Right? And uh, thankfully she, she didn't like just tear into me, but she was gracious, and she pointed out some things. And, and that's the way we should be with one another in our marriages, right? And when we sin against each other, we ask forgiveness. And uh, we're, we also point out, we say, you know, honey, you that really hurt me when you did that. Now, I think you sinned against me, and we're, we deal with these things in our marriage. We don't let them go on. And just develop over time and get worse and worse and worse and build up a, a, a more of a barrier in the relationship. Can you say, honey, as far as I know, it may be that some of you husbands and wives couldn't do that this morning and be honest. Well, what are you going to do about it? Jesus tells you what to do. Here in our text, very clear, it's not a complicated You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew and go to seminary for seven years to understand what Jesus is talking about here. It's very simple. simple. It's humbling to our pride, but it's very simple. Go to your spouse. Confess your sin. Ask for his or her forgiveness. Oh, well, my wife knows that I didn't mean it when I yelled at her. No, my friend, when you sinned against your wife you need to humble yourself and ask God's forgiveness and then you need to ask her forgiveness. And listen, whether it be a brother or sister in the church at large or your spouse or whoever, genuine confession means, now listen to me, it means that you do not shift the blame. Not even a little bit. You don't make excuses. How many times do you hear that? Well, I hear it in marriage counseling. Well, I know I shouldn't have done such and such, but here's what she did, or here's what he did. Well, I immediately know that this person is not really repenting. They're shifting blame. They're making excuses. You don't make excuses. Yeah, maybe she did do this, but we're not talking about what she did. We're talking about what you did, right? You don't make excuses. You honestly and humbly take full responsibility for the wrong that you did and ask for the person's forgiveness. Now, they may have some fault in the matter as well, but first, remember what Jesus taught us in, in Matthew 7, 1-5. First, you deal with your own sin, right? First, you stick strictly to what you have done wrong, and later on, having made sure that you've removed the beam from your own eye, then you're prepared to talk to that brother or sister about the speck that's in theirs. And let me just add one other thing here. I don't want to be too nitpicky, but I think this is important. I mean, sometimes we know what someone means when they say this, but I want you to think with me. To say, I'm sorry, is not really the same thing as asking for forgiveness. When you tell someone you're sorry, you're not really asking them to do anything. You're just telling them how you feel. But when someone says, I've sinned, will you please forgive me? He's asking you to make a promise to bury that matter, to no longer hold it against them. Remember, that's what forgiveness is. It's hard to make the promise of forgiveness when a person has never asked you to do so. Jay Adams gives this illustration. He says, picture the person who has done something wrong is holding a basketball, all right? And he comes to you and he's holding the basketball and he says, I'm sorry. Well, he's still holding the basketball. It's kind of awkward. What is the other person supposed to say? Well, I'm really sorry that you feel sorry. What are you supposed to say? But when the wrongdoer says, Will you please forgive me? You see, now he tosses the ball to the other person. And the burden of responsibility is shifted, and the other person must either make the promise of forgiveness or refuse to do so, which is displeasing to God. And so, ask for forgiveness. It's not quite as humbling either to just say, Well, I'm sorry, sorry for what? what did you do and ask forgiveness, right all right, moving, moving on now, we're about running out of time. There's a second principle here in this text, and it's really a corollary to the first, and it's this that's not only do we to 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 walk in communion and fellowship and a healthy relationship with our heavenly Father. That means we need to maintain a healthy relationship with others. Secondly, we see that sins against another person are to be dealt with quickly. We're not to let things fester, to carry over, to accumulate. Jesus emphasizes that as soon as you're aware that you've sinned against this other person, you're to deal with it. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. And in the illustration that follows after this, he emphasizes again this matter of being quick about it. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him. The slightest breach must be quickly dealt with. You're not to say, oh, well, it will blow over after a while. Nothing to be concerned about. No, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, remember the words of the wise man in Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. And you remember the illustration I used, the gigantic hydroelectric dam. What happens if that dam gets a little crack in it and a little water seeping through there? Well, unless that crack is quickly repaired, the water seeping through it will cause it to wear and to gradually get bigger and bigger. It won't just go away by trying to ignore it. Like maybe you're trying to ignore that drip that's happening in your sink in the bathroom. It's not going to go away. It's going to get worse. And there'll begin to be more cracks in that dam, more cracks, until finally, suddenly, unexpectedly, that whole dam, it just bursts and the whole countryside is flooded and many people's lives are affected and destroyed. So it is with a little breach in a relationship that's left unrepaired, a little breach between brothers in Christ, a little breach in the unity of the church. Little breaches in the relationship between husbands and wives that are not quickly dealt with. All it takes is a little crack, unprepared, and the door is open for the devil to squeeze in and to all kinds of havoc. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians four twenty six: Be angry. Sometimes there's such a thing as righteous anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. There we have the same principle. Make things right quickly or you're going to give opportunity to the devil. And you can be assured that if you give him opportunity, he will take it. And he's pretty skilled. He's been doing it for thousands of years. You give him opportunity, he will take it. He never misses a chance when it's given to him. If I might give another little personal story here, I, I can think of numbers of times, I don't think Kelly reminds me of saying this. Maybe she's looking at me, but <laughs> but I can remember numbers of times when Kelly and I have had a spat about something, and I've been lying in bed, and I am determined that I'm not going to be the first one to say something. And you know what verse God always brings to my mind, or often brings to my mind? Be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And I don't want to give place to the devil in my marriage. And that verse is like God screaming in my conscience you need to say something, and you need to make it right. And that's the way we should live in our relationships to one another. I close with an illustration from a book I read some time ago addressing this subject and it says when sins are confessed it's like picking something up that was dropped on the carpet if a l- person learns to pick up things immediately which we all wish our children would do a thousand things can be dropped on the carpet and the home will still remain clean. But if things are only picked up once every six months, the result will be an overwhelming house, house cleaning job. In the same way, things need to be picked up in all relationships. Confession of wrongdoing should always occur immediately. He who covers his sins shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. Nothing good was ever accomplished through postponement of confession. If something is dropped on the floor now, it should be picked up now. Short accounts must be kept. It's necessary to avoid putting off confession. And, dear friends, ultimately, this is all about living out the gospel in our relationships to one another. That's what it's about. When you, as a sinner, come to Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone, and His death for sinners on the cross for acceptance with God, in repenting of your sins, God forgives you freely. He will save you and he receives you when you come to him for mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. And he freely forgives you and he accepts you as though you had never sinned. That's the gospel. Well, having been reconciled to him like this, he expects us to seek to be reconciled to one another. He expects us to forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And when we are aware that we have sinned against a brother or sister, he expects us to make it right with them insofar as it's possible to do so. And when we do these things, when we live this way in our homes, in our families, in our church, we are walking in step with the gospel that we believe, and we're living out the gospel. We're living it out in our relationships to one another. And we're maintaining not only healthy relationships to each other, but healthy communion and relationship with our heavenly Father. Living in unbroken communion with the God who has saved us and reconciled us to himself. So, in light of these things, let me close these last three messages or two messages, however many. Let me close this morning by asking you, how is it with you? Is there someone you've wronged in a way they're aware of, a way that has brought harm to them that they're aware of, and you've not humbled yourself and asked their forgiveness? Let me exhort you to do so. Or is there a person that I have not approached over wrongs they have committed against me that have separated us and divided us and caused an alienation between us, and I've not gone to that person to seek to address it? Or is there a person that I've refused to forgive who sought forgiveness or someone I'm not even willing to forgive? I have no desire, no heart to forgive. Well, you need to confess that as sin. Cast yourself upon Christ for mercy. His blood can cleanse us and does cleanse us from all of our sins and ask Him for His the help of His Holy Spirit to help your you to do what you're called to do to change your heart and then you go then you set out from that point and you begin to obey what the lord has called you to do amen all right let's pray together our father we thank you for your word it is sharp at times it cuts it is so sometimes painfully clear but it comes from your heart of love toward us, your people. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would pardon our failures in this area. Surely, Lord, this reminds us of how dependent we are upon your perfect righteousness and your shed blood. Lord, we have so often failed. Our hope is in you and in the gospel. But, Lord, we don't want to be those who make the gospel an excuse to continue in sin. But We pray that you'd help us to change and help us to act in obedience to the things that you have taught us from your word this morning. And we ask it in your holy and precious name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.